Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 127 of the Energy Talks podcast. And today I'm really excited. This is going to be a great interview. I'm going to be talking to Karen Hamburg, who is the partner in financial advisory for Deloitte Canada, a national clean technology leader, about a report that was released last week about clean tech in Canada and the challenge that are uh, that's in front of us. A big, big challenge. Uh, other episodes have dealt with industrial policy and the challenge of scaling up technology uh, and the the challenge of making Canada competitive and relevant in a new industrial age. So welcome to the interview, Karen. Thank you so much, Markham. Pleased to be here. Well, you and I first met uh, back in October. We were on a panel together at a summit hosted by a number of uh, Ivy Foundation and a number of, of, of uh, think tanks. And the panel was around strategy for industrial policy. And the I thought at, at that, um, I want to tell a little anecdote. Uh, the panel that you and I sat on included Michael Wernick, Dr. Michael Wernick, who up until 2019 was the uh, top uh, he was a clerk of the Privy Council. For my American listeners, what that means is Canada's the top bureaucrat in the Canadian government. So now he's a, an economics teacher. I think it was University of Ottawa or Carleton University. And so this is a guy who's got who's basically had his fingers on the machinery that makes policy for years in one in one way or another. And he and I got into it a little bit in the panel. Because he made a comment about, hey, look, you know, uh, yeah, sure, things are changing, but Canada's done this before. It's not our first rodeo, and and we'll kind of muddle along, and we'll get there. You know, where this isn't an existential threat to the Canadian economy or anything like that. And I took exception to that because I think that's exactly the the opposite is true, and I think your report is one of the proofs of that hypothesis, that argument. And the it, this is a great report. I mean, it really gets into the meat of clean technology and the challenges and the systems that have to be put in place, the policy that that have to be put in place. And and my argument is that the the uh, global energy system has the energy transition has triggered an industrial transformation, just in the last couple of years. And you know, some of the shocks like the the. COVID-19 pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine were part of that. But we've now triggered this clean energy manufacturing revolution. And if we don't get on board with this. It's It, it does pr uh, present an existential threat to our prosperity. Would you agree or disagree with that hypothesis? Well, I think I would agree to some to some extent. And I think What's really key about the focus of this report, and we can get more into it, why I wrote it, my background, and all of that. 
but there is a role now for corporate and industrial Canada. I believe the federal government, our provincial governments have been, you know, making investments. We can argue that it's certainly not enough, that they have been setting out, you know, the policy frameworks that are required. But now this is about the private sector and what they need to be doing to deploy this technology at scale. And so I would agree we will muddle through, but there needs to be more urgency, more ambition, and certainly more leadership from our private sector. Well, uh, I I couldn't agree more on the urgency side. And, and throughout this report, you keep talking about we need to have conversations at the national level. And I couldn't agree. We've, we've been talking about that here at Energy Media for years, how we need to have national conversations of, about things like oil and gas and, and clean energy, emerging clean energy. But I want to read, uh, and some of the setting for this conversation that you and I are having uh, comes from the International Energy Agency, which just about 10 days ago released its really seminal um, Technology Perspectives 2023 report. And I want to read uh, just a short quote from that because I really think it sets the stage for our, our conversation. The new energy economy is changing the industries that supply the materials and products underpinning the energy system, heralding the dawn of a new industrial age the age of clean energy technology manufacturing. This is like the 18th century industrial revolution. When the IEA says that, I think we need to pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not, I, I skimmed the report. It was sort of in the, in the, because released around the time we were releasing this one. And is it still, you know, the half of emission reductions that we're going to need for net zero are still coming from technology, still in the prototype and the demonstration phase. And in many hard to abate sectors, no technologies emerged as the standard yet either. And so the thinking behind what we built here is we need investment, but we need this parallel path effort around deploying the technology that we have now that's commercially available now for 2030 and then really having that national conversation or provincial or regional, whatever it's going to be, around the pathways for, for 2050. And maybe we'll get a bit into my background here later on, but I just, I came to Deloitte in May of 2022. I spent 20 years in industry clean tech prior to that. And Deloitte gave me the opportunity to do the analysis and write the report that I thought was missing in the Canadian literature. So I'm super grateful to them for that. Well, thank goodness. Thank you, Deloitte. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this report and this, this very interesting conversation. Well, look, Karen, I think this is a great time to talk about your background. What is? Tell us about your 20 years in, in clean tech. Sure. So as people know who are listening to this and understand our clean technology sector, there are maybe a handful, small handful of companies that have revenue greater than $100 million that are considered clean tech. One is Westport Fuel Systems in Vancouver. Second one is Ballard. Companies that are 30 years you know, in operation. So incredible achievement um, for that. And I worked at Westport for 20 years. And I was on our market creation, market development team. And so we had technology called HPDI, high pressure direct injection. And it essentially enables a diesel engine to run on liquefied natural gas. In Europe right now, there are four engines above 400 horsepower that can have, you know, 1100 kilometers of range that run on LNG. There's more than, my gosh, I think it's like 
600 LNG fueling stations in Europe, all the fleets have transitioned to renewable natural gas. It's a very different market. That technology, its first patent was 1989 at the University of British Columbia, commercialized with Volvo trucks in Europe, 2017. So there's this huge, <laughs> this huge period of time from an idea to commercialization. And so in my time at Westport, we did, we built these markets, whether it was in Europe or California for, for natural gas, for heavy duty trucking. And I always say this, that the lessons that we learned from natural gas, from propane, from early sorts of, you know, even hybrids to some extent, those lessons are instructive now for EV and for, for hydrogen. And so my time at Westport came to an end. There, the work that I sort of wanted to keep doing was, you know, shifting in geography. I wasn't interested in, you know, sort of, well, to be fair, you know, I worked in clean tech and we turned into a tier one automotive supplier. That's an incredible success story for, for Canada. And I didn't want to work at a tier one automotive supplier. It's a very different, you know, different day to day, different sort of uh, culture, different sort of sets of goals and metrics and objectives. I really love the innovation side. And so I started talking to um, three of the big four firms in my sort of my year sabbatical that I took. And I kept pitching to Deloitte. I said, Canada needs a clean technology practice focused on commercialization. And they said, well, we've got a, you know, we've got a clean tech practice. We've got, you know, people that are wicked smart on technology and net zero decarbonization. We may help with, you know, corporate finance, M&A, auditing, financial statements, all of that. And I said, absolutely. Absolutely, you do. I said, but where is this effort around creating the commercial ecosystems that Canada is going to need, first of all? And second of all, when we are in those corporate boardrooms, how well do our industrial and corporate clients understand the suite of Canadian technologies that are available to them? And I'm like, I just kept coming back to that is a function of a big four firm. And so they they brought me in. You know, someone with no professional services experience, but incredible industry expertise and and gave me the opportunity to write this report. Well, uh, after you and I sat on that panel in uh, Ottawa, the next week, I went to Vancouver and spent a day interviewing five hydrogen, uh, we'll call them on the demand side, hydrogen companies in the hydrogen space. One of them was Westport. Had a, had a delightful conversation with the CEO and, and a couple of the engineers uh, there. And was was very impressed. We, we're going to release that uh, that some video clips and, and a new and a video news feature uh, probably next month after I get back from Edmonton, where I'll be doing the same thing on the supply side. But one of the things that we talked about with those companies was the process and struggle of taking a new technology, commercializing it, and then scaling it up. Because that seems to be, uh, that is a hard, hard thing to do. And it, it, it's, there's, there's a reason why there are only a few companies, you know, operating at global scale in, in some of these industries. Uh, so let's get into your report. And, and maybe we could start by saying, what is clean technology from your point of view and the report's point of view? So... Historical definition, you know, those products, technologies, and services that, you know, reduce environmental impact. But 
Sustainable Development Technology Canada in its last year's corporate plan really introduced a far more comprehensive definition. And I think that it is where I would like to see the discussion going because you're right, it's not just about tech products, services, tools, et cetera, that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It is about the opportunity to have more circular economies through recycling, regeneration, reuse of resources, things that promote well-being for communities and nature, so sustainable agriculture, urban air quality solutions, things that contribute to resilient communities and cities, and then things that preserve and regenerate our natural ecosystems as well. So it's all of what we're going to need here in this climate-impacted uh, world. In addition to clean energy, in addition to the technologies Absolutely. that consume or uh, that uh, that uh, new energy. And I guess what um, we're really talking here, I think, it seems to me that five years ago, we weren't sure where you know, a lot of the clean energy was going to come from. Uh, what Now, I think it's becoming clear that a lot of it is going to be electricity. We're going to electrify uh, large parts of our economy. What can't be electrified will be probably either hydrogen or some other sustainable fuel, like sustainable aviation fuel, that sort of, I mean, that's basically the path we're on. There aren't any other miracle, you know, fuels or sources of energy coming along. And what, so what's the state of Canada's clean energy tech, uh, technology industry today? Well, that's a great question because the state determines how you're measuring it. So some might say that on the global clean tech 100, I think that came out about 10 days ago, there are 12 Canadian companies on that list. Fantastic. There are 12 Canadian companies that have been internationally recognized as a potential to have an outsized impact. Great. Others might say it's only 3.1% of, of GDP. And if some expect, you know, a decline of GDP contribution from our oil and gas sector, that 3.1% number needs to be a lot bigger. Some may explain it in terms of jobs. Some may explain it in terms of, you know, the emission reductions that we're able to, to get. I think that there are certainly world-leading companies, companies that are exporting all over the world, that are recognized as leaders in their technology. But again, that sector needs to, needs to grow and Canada needs to ensure that, um, that we're, we're you know, generating not just the, the economic value, but the social and the environmental prosperity from those companies, from those companies as well. Okay, what about, you've got a section in your report about building coherent commercial ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And that really piqued my interest. What is a coherent commercial ecosystem? So what we thought about then was all of the elements that need to be in place for the deployment of a technology at scale. And I also find the term scale to be, I don't know the definition that you use, but it's its quite fuzzy. And people sort of use it as a catch-all for, you know, I like to think of it in terms of market share, revenue, meaningful greenhouse gas emission reductions, what have you. Commercialization, meaning you can put in an order for a product or a service or a tech and it will be delivered to you. It's not still in that pilot and demonstration phase. And so there's a body of theory, literature called innovation system analysis, and it looks at all of those different elements and assigns a quantitative ranking to the elements of tech adoption, tech, de tech deployment, and tech diffusion. 
And so we thought, okay, why don't we try to build one of these innovation system analysis based models for clean tech? Because the questions that we get, the first questions always about any technology are, does it work? How much does it cost? Does it reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Critical questions, pivotal, the foundational questions. But even if it works, even if it's cost competitive, even if it will reduce greenhouse gases, there are still a whole series of other elements of that ecosystem that need to be in place. And I, you know, my 20 years in clean tech, my work with the government of Canada on economic strategy tables, on industry strategy council, it just reinforced all of the activity that needs to happen in that ecosystem, whether it's market requirements, policy and regs, or the capacity of the organization itself to actually deploy its technology. Now, Canada has a building, I think, what is called an innovation ecosystem. There's a, the Canadian Research uh, Innovation Network, CRIN. Uh, various provincial governments have put money into um, into in supporting innovation. Uh, I'm most familiar with Alberta, but also BC a little bit, not so much Ontario and, and Quebec for the f four big economies in, in Canada. Um, what's the state of that ecosystem today? Are we, is it well-developed uh, that, so that we can deploy it to scale up some of these and, you know, support these companies that are looking to scale uh, at a global level? Or do we have a lot of work to do? Oh, I think there's a lot of work to do. I guess we could probably argue about the type of work that's that's required. And so I heard this number, and I would love it if someone would fact check it for me, but that the federal government alone has 95 different agencies that are tasked with innovation. So you can imagine the overlap, duplication, dropped balls, whatever that's whatever that is going to going to be or inefficiencies associated with that. And so certainly there is no shortage of, you know, you know, innovative ideas, entrepreneurs who are entirely scientifically capable top of their field at trying to develop some of those innovations. It's just that age old question about Canada and how then we deploy those technologies at home commercialize them and ensure that those companies find a find a home to operate in in Canada as well. So I think how do we say it it's a, not a startup problem it's a scale up problem and it certainly is it's still a scale up problem. So does that mean that we're the problem is scaling up the technologies or scaling up the innovation system? Scaling up the markets, the ecosystems that are going to be home or receptive or the markets for those for those different technologies if we go back to you know the heavy duty example whether we're talking liquefied natural gas or ev or hydrogen you would see all of the elements of a value chain that need to be in place the infrastructure that needs to be built out is there a supply chain that can deliver that product are there customers and markets that are familiar with that um with that technology. And then we look a step further out, policy, regs, codes and standards. Codes and standards have held up, you know, as many great ideas as, as, as not. And so I just, I kept coming back to this idea. We talk about, and this is why we called the report what we did, you know, we don't just need to scale a company. We don't just need to scale technology. 
we need to scale solutions. And that's why I thought, you know, the title was clever, I guess. I liked it. Uh, yes, uh, agreed. Um, on the At the uh, Industrial Policy Summit that you and I attended in October, Dr. Bentley Allen from Johns Hopkins and also research director at the Transition Accelerator in Canada, uh, sort of laid out the the his ideas about how this process should work. And he talked about old style industrial policy, kind of the pre-1980, where you you choose a national champion in a particular industry and then you protect it with tariffs and other measures and and you grow it till it's it, it you you keep it from from competition uh in your domestic market and until it can you know go out on its own and compete in in the global markets and he said but but this modern industrial policy is very different it's all it's about uh putting together a strategy to build industrial clusters in particular sectors and then all of the stakeholders have to come together. So it's it's governments at, at both the federal level and the provincial level. It's the the industry, it's academics, it's scientists. It's they need to get together and and do the work that's required to put together the strategy. And then they can decide who is responsible for implementing it. And, and the example that I think uh, that I'm most familiar with, and you, I'm, you know well, I'm, I'm sure, is the Edmonton uh, Regional Hydrogen Hub, uh, where where the governments are not leaders, they are stakeholders and participants, and it's kind of a, a well, the Transition Accelerator actually is the one that does the day-to-day -day administration, and, and that, that model seems to be moving things along on the hydrogen supply side in Alberta in that area quite nicely. And is that the kind of approach that we need to this in order to build the ecosystem to support these budding industrial clusters? I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And so when I think about back to that panel, the, the whole day discussion is around what are the elements of this industrial strategy, right? So it's some bold and some clear you know, net zero goals in priority opportunity areas. Have we had the discussion yet in Canada about what those priority opportunity areas are? In the discussions that I've been in, it's certainly we have strength here, but then we could also be good at A, B, C, D, E. We tend to include, you know, everyone. We wouldn't want anyone to be to be left out. I think the other thing too that's critical to this is these strategic collaborations. And that's where I'm so excited about these regional energy and resources tables. Um, that we will probably see more in the in this year about, but it's this whole idea around how regions, territories, provinces make these um, regional economic development decisions in a net zero economy. And so the whole thinking is coming together, having that strategic collaboration of stakeholders. What are the economic priority opportunities aligned with net zero? Who owns what of that plan? How do we continue to work together and check progress and hold accountabilities? And then what type of investment's going to be required, both public and private? Where are our challenges with the, you know, the policy, the regs, the mechanisms that are in place to drive that decarbonization? I just think it's such a brilliant model because I would imagine, and I've seen this in national conversations about energy, couple of loud, really loud voices. And so if you are Manitoba, you are, you know, still needing to decarbonize your economy, still wanting to make sure you have the jobs of the future for people, 
you know, you get lost. You get lost in that bigger national conversation. So I'm really hopeful about these, the tables and the outcomes of them. You've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation about the, you know, this national conversation that needs to take place. And again, this is a constant, uh, it's a persistent theme at Energy Media. We, we talk about changing the national conversation around energy because it is is still dominated by the legacy uh, energy companies and the light legacy energy interests. And, you know, primarily that's that's oil and gas, but not necessarily. It also includes electricity, which are have big, big incumbents in the in the uh, in the utility sector. And what happens is, like, I wanted to ask you where you think this conversation to, should take place, because as far as I can see, uh, most of the conversation takes place uh, doesn't take place in the public, and the public at this point has very little interest. They don't even know. Uh, most of the people I talk to aren't aware of these big trends going on at the global level, and Canada's need to respond to them. And the media, my media colleagues, of of just, uh, I despair sometimes the level of of, of reporting uh, that goes on around the energy sector, and you know we're very. Canada suffers a little bit from being parochial and, you know, provincial mm -hmm. inward looking instead of outward looking. And so where do you, where should we be having this behind closed doors? No, not behind closed doors. But then the question is who convenes it? Who has the gravitas, the influence, the credibility, the ownership, who, that's what I keep coming back to is who could lead that conversation. And Michael Warnick on the panel said something that really did land with me. He said, you know, in your group here, you're the transition accelerator, smart prosperity, you're people working in, um, you know, the philanthropic sector, funding, environmental activities. He said, you need to be having the same conversations with, with this is like a Canadian and an economic story. So it's not just a story for whatever government is in power right now. These conversations need to be happening with, you know, the opposition parties as well. And so he encouraged us to think on that. I thought that was really, really smart. I'm not quite sure the degree to which I've been involved in those discussions, but I know that they are, that they're happening. So then I think, okay, who can convene? And so you look at a model like Pathways, right? Where all the oil sand producers come together. Do we need something like that for cement or for steel or for, you know, another hard to abate sector, maybe? Is it the federal government's responsibility working with the provinces and with indigenous groups as the, you know, sort of the stewards of those of those resources and those um, those opportunities? So where is it? I guess I'd love to hear your ideas. Who convenes and and how? What's the mechanism for that? Well, we participate in that in that conversation, mm -hmm. and you know, one of uh, our takes on this is the lack of coherent narratives. And I know this sounds, you know, for, for technical people, you know, economists like Michael Wernick or folks who are running companies, and you know, who cares about narratives? You know, like, let's just get on with it. But what narratives do is they focus people's attention in a way that helps them understand complex issues with simple images and and simple language and you know so for instance 
I, I kind of gave you a narrative uh, in the introduction where I said, you know, look, there was the energy transition. It's rapidly accelerating. Then we have the shock of the pandemic. And then we have the shock of the Russia's, and, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that sets off, a, a, you know, a big change in the global uh, energy technology. It's, it's basically sets off a new industrial age, you know, a, a rapid acceleration of that. And now Canada has to has to decide if it can play in that sandbox. That's essentially a narrative. And if we can't explain to Canadians, and if we can't explain to politicians, I mean, I, you know, I know lots of politicians and they're smart people, but my goodness, this is not their field, you know, and we need to, we need to get them to buy into this. And the reason for that, if you're not if you're not Canadian and you're listening to this podcast, you have no idea about the squabbling that goes on between provinces and the federal government over energy and technology and stuff like this. It's in the newspapers almost every day, and and it snuffs out the conversation. And we need to part of what we do here at Energy Media is to try to develop those narratives, and then popularize, get them out, so that people do understand, and. You know, we just don't have a big enough megaphone uh, some days. That's I think that's our biggest problem. We've got narratives. And so I don't know about the organizational aspects of this, you know, uh, what kind of structures are required, what kind of forms are required. That's kind of outside of our purview, uh, above my pay grade. Let's put it that way. But nevertheless, how we talk about this and the stories we tell to explain it from my point of view, is very, very critical. I agree. So let me give you an example. So I served on the Government of Canada's Industry Strategy Council. That was a group that was convened in June 2020 to help with real-time sectoral impacts from COVID-19. And then around the whole thinking, how can Canada, this was all around, you know, build back better, green recovery, think of what we were talking about in, at that time, 2020. And so... My counterpart in the digital sector was John Baker, who's the president and CEO of D2L. And John's rallying cry, his goal was 100% digital connectivity by 2025, to which every Canadian can say, absolutely, whether you are in a remote community, a northern community, an indigenous community, wherever, all Canadians need to be connected. This needs to be equitable. The goal for clean tech was $20 billion in exports by 2025, to which most people would say, okay, is that good? Where are we now? Should it be more? Is that a lot? Who gets fired up about you know, a goal like this? So what's our ambition or our vision then on how Canada can be a competitive player in this in this space, right? Our exports, I think the last number is 7.1 billion. Here we are at 2022 or 2023. So we've got, you know, incredible growth that needs to happen. We're not going to hit that target. So there's a degree of ambition, opportunity, vision associated with how we communicate about, about energy and this revolution and this tr transformation that needs to that needs to happen. The polarization is very 
it's difficult. It's not helpful. I can imagine, you know, the the wordsmithing that goes on in every, you know, sort of government <laughs> announcement and in every sort of minister speaking note and that. Um, but I think we see, you know, incredible opportunity. And, you know, the oil and gas sector is, you know, trying to contribute to that in the way that they see as well. Well, you've um, you set out um, sectoral challenges. Uh, well, challenges for seven sectors, and three of them are ones that we cover in our energy beat. So I want to talk about those oil and gas, electricity and transportation. And since you mentioned oil and gas, let's get into that, because that's that is a conversation that I spend a lot of time on and and particularly particularly around Alberta and. I have been arguing since 2015 that, you know, we're 20 or 30 years into an energy transition and and there are changes coming that will have a profound effect on the oil and gas sector. And the, I, I ran into, I don't know how many people in the industry who actually deny that there's an energy transition. Having that conversation was really difficult up until about the last two, three years. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about energy transition. And this, to me, is a microcosm of our problem. We're so fixated on the, you know, 20th century energy and what we should do to protect it, what we should do to, you know, incentivize it, whatever the case might be, and not so focused on 21st century energy and 21st century clean energy technologies. So let's talk about oil and gas. What do you think, what are the commercial challenges and what are the potential market accelerants? So in our report, we looked at the seven sectors in Canada's emission reduction plan. And I have found in, you know, 20 plus years of clean tech panels and discussions is that we often get, you know, really hung up on these barriers and the barriers are tough and they're insurmountable and they're going to be expensive. And we sort of go round in circles. And so I thought, let's talk about it in terms of accelerants then. What could actually be the catalysts that really drive some, some opportunity, right? In the transport sector, you need an OEM partner to be able to go to, to market with, right? If you don't have a if you're not working with one of the major automakers or truck makers or engine makers, you know, your path is, is really, really uphill. And so with the oil and gas sector, though, I thought, all right, there are certainly small P political issues with Ottawa that perhaps take precedence over the global trends on which your podcast, you know, reports all of the time. These are not, you know, Ottawa national policies that are impacting the sector. These are global and capital market, capital market trends. So it's not just the challenges, you know, the, the choices that we make nationally or, you know, with whatever government is in power in Ottawa. It's around then how do we ensure a path forward for Canada in this sector, whether it looks like, you know, diversification, different commodities, whatever that's going to be. And so I think one of the best stories, and it's varied because it's, did you read the Bank of Canada climate scenarios that came out in January of last year? I did not, I confess. If you ever get it, and maybe they'll reduce or release some this year as well, but there's a, a set of scenario that shows sort of one of these, you know, sudden shocks to our oil and gas sector. So whatever that's going to be. And it really shows this drop off in GDP contribution from, you know, 105 billion to whatever that is. 
And I don't know the degree to which Canadians understand the contribution of that sector and to, to Canada's economic and social prosperity. And so how do we make then ensure that the sector can decarbonize, can diversify? We are still going to have oil and gas needs as per 2050, according to lots of other reports, but it's ensuring how that is a decarbonized barrel um, of oil. And so maybe it's a matter of trying to advance that understanding and for the sector, but you know what? It's not the sector, Markham, because I hear these leaders speaking about you know their leadership, their vision, the investments that they want to make. And it's it's still just this this disconnect between what's actually getting done, how much money's being invested, how much change is actually happening, and then the, the fear that people would have that their jobs and lives and livelihoods would be disrupted. Maybe uh, I'll explain my take on this um, by getting back to our panel. Uh, I was representing the Alberta Federation of Labor because I was the lead writer on their uh, report that had come out in October, uh, Skate to Where the Puck is Going. And one of the seven missions uh, for Alberta's uh, energy uh, economy, the number one was to transition oil and gas over a period of time, 30 years, roughly, whatever, you know, maybe it's 40 years, but transition it from producing feedstock for fuels to producing feedstock for advanced materials manufacturing. And so the best example is you take bitumen, uh, Alberta Innovates is working on a, a process or a couple of years away from commercialization where they can take bitumen, which has very unique uh, chemical properties and makes it ideal to become a precursor for carbon fiber manufacturing. And, and then there are lots of other uh, examples in captured CO2 and, and, and on and on. Uh, and, but Getting advanced materials onto into the energy conversation in Alberta is very, very difficult because it's it's th that conversation is dominated by we want more LNG exports. Uh, we want a pipeline. We want, you know, it's all of these 20th century arguments. And so injecting 21st century kinds of uh, ideas into it around energy is it, it, it's it's a mountain to climb so that's that's my take on it is that there there's an alberta's very uniquely positioned to transition its its oil and gas sector in fact its entire energy sector if you include electricity and and you know the emerging hydrogen economy have it all work together and in my opinion to come out in 2050 far more prosperous far more stable no longer subject to the oil and gas boom and bust cycle. This is an opportunity that will never be presented to Alberta again. This is a one in a hundred year opportunity. Part of that new industrial revolution that the IEA talks about. But all of them, we'll, we won't get into the complexities of that conversation, but that impinges on the, what, the federal government can do what the provincial government do will do what the oil companies are willing to do because that's a big part of it right i mean you you talked about the contribution to the canadian economy it's easily the biggest uh, export sector it's 100 billion to 120 billion a year 
it's twice the uh, the auto sector, which is the next the next biggest. It regularly every year it gets twenty five to thirty billion dollars of capital investment, sustaining and and uh, so it, it's enormously uh, it's enormously um, influential and important to the economy. But the issues that you bring in, you know, you talk about in in your report, policy signals, financing gaps, risk aversion. Within the industry, like I worked in the industry for five years. I talked to engineers every day, all day, every day for five years. There is maybe not another, maybe bankers are more risk averse, but I doubt it. There is, I don't think there's anybody more risk averse than an oil and gas engineer. It's part of the culture. Anyway, that's kind of my take on what is one of the, the big impediments. And this is intellectual. It's not it's not a money matter of money. It's not a matter of technology. It's I think it's the it's the idea barrier that we have to get past. Would you agree or disagree? I would agree to an extent, although I'm probably a bit more hopeful because we are seeing now the technology. And, and I can appreciate this. If you were a executive in any sector that needs to decarbonize, you are bombarded with messages about technology and potential and the next great idea. And so you need help or you need people on your team that can, you know, sort of navigate this really rapidly emerging technology landscape where everything performs as advertised, right? Your marketing materials line up with your operational performance. And that's certainly not the case in every example. You need to, you understand that you need to make big investments, but you don't know the pace and the sequencing of those investments. You think maybe if I wait a couple more years, something will emerge as the standard. You need to th figure out then how would I operationalize that in my in my facilities, in my industry, in my in my sector. And so I have a real appreciation. I can imagine how difficult that it is. I think that there's a lot of people trying to do the right, the right thing and make the right investments and understand where we're going. But you're right, there is a risk aversion, not just to clean technology innovation, but to innovation in deploying innovation in, in Canada in in general. And we just don't have that time. And so one of the messages that I hope to get across in the report is Canada's made investment in clean tech over the last, you know, 30 years. And some of those solutions are commercially available now and sold all over the world. Those solutions that are, you know, off the shelf to some degree is what we need for, for 2030. In our sort of our vision of, you know, big transformation, complete, you know, economic transformation to some degree, like just some just getting some base hits might be good too. I, I think it, we, in fairness to, to the oil and gas CEOs, the oil and gas industry is the biggest man, uh, purchaser of clean technology products and services in the country. Agreed. And and there's a lot of companies, clean tech companies in Alberta. In fact, Alberta is a leader in clean tech uh, company development. And so that's fair. that's fair enough. But a lot of it is cleaning up the existing operations, you know, lowering emissions or fixing environmental problems or addressing them, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. But what do we do? How do we, how do we get past this, um, this problem? We, we seem to be stuck. It's like, it's like quicksand. It, it doesn't matter how much you struggle. 
and how much you call out, nothing ever changes. You just keep sinking deeper and deeper into the quicksand. How do we fix that? Well, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that the entrepreneurs, the innovators that we have in Canada are going to be making progress on their solutions. I'm hopeful around the voices that are coming to lead. So whether it's Transition Accelerator and that consortium, whether it's regional energy resources tables and others, whether it's parallel networks and collaborations that look like like a pathways model, but for different hard to abate sectors, I think there's just signals of progress everywhere. And until you sort of, you know, maybe step back and get a different, a different look at it, um, maybe it feels like we're not making as much progress. And I, Convinced in the report, you know, the federal government continues to need to do its thing with investment and with all of the policy and regulatory signals, but it's on the private sector now to be really determining their pathway for decarbonization. And it's not one company, they're going to be doing it as a sector or an industry. And so that requires a new model of collaboration that perhaps isn't as well developed yet as it needs to be. Okay, that that gives me a thought. And there's a, a lot of literature around the problem of incumbents within a sector. And so the three sectors we're going to talk about, oil and gas, electricity, and transportation, all have big incumbents. And they incumbents tend to dominate the, dominate the process of change. And of course, they're always wanting to slow it down and, and you know, uh, uh, design the, the uh, adaptation to that to change to their own benefit. Why wouldn't they? That's they're the big players in the in the process, and you see that in oil and gas. You absolutely see that. There's like five or six companies that are very large, and 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 they are uh, use that incumbent power. You see it in electricity, because so much of the Canadian electricity system is dominated by crown owned, government owned uh, utilities: BC, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, Quebec. You know, it's a big one, even in, in some in the, in, the, in the Maritimes. But let's take a look at transportation because you have incumbents there, but Tesla has disrupted that model. And now everybody's chasing Tesla. And within this, I read a Reuters report a couple months ago that said between now and 2030, the, industry, the, the, the global automakers are so committed now to switching to electric that they are planning to spend $1.2 trillion to switch all of their, their manufacturing to EVs, to build out the, the supply chains that they need, to build battery plants, all of that. $1.2 trillion. They're all in because their model was disrupted. Now, in electricity, you don't see that. There is no Tesla equivalent. In oil and gas, there is no Tesla equivalent to disrupt things and 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 make the the incumbents change more quickly than they want to. Am I is is that a a reasonable take on this? I would say so. The transport sector what we've seen in the last 2 or 3 years even around not just the commercial push that they've had or the market push but look what happened with, you know, the US and the Trump administration wanting to pull back the clean air like like pull back California's waiver on the clean air act and it was the automakers that went to the federal government and said no, like we have to be globally competitive here in this industry. We are going to continue to, you know, develop vehicles, push towards electrification that can meet those 
those more stringent quality standards. And so there's leadership, there's examples. And I think when we, you know, look back every year, we're going to be seeing these examples of, of things being disrupted in, in real time. I'm hopeful. Well, let's talk about electricity a little bit because the, you know, um, a number of the uh, think tanks that were at this at the conference that you and I, the summit that you and I attended, have put out studies on Canada's electricity system. The rule of thumb is that by 2050, Canada is going to have to double or triple the amount of electricity it produces, clean electricity. Now, it, it's going to have to transmit that, that electricity. It's going to have to distribute it to residential and, and commercial markets. It's a big, big job, and again, is one we're not talking about. And you, all you have to do is look south of the border. Man, the conversation they're having around their grid is is robust. There's lots of, and and some of it's driven by the fact that you know California every summer seems to be on the verge of having blackouts, and then and if it's not California, it's Texas. So I mean, you know, crises have have w focused their attention wonderfully well. To, to uh, paraphrase Dr. Johnson, but we haven't had that here. Our, our, our system is reliable and inexpensive. You know, we, we produce great, but that becomes an impediment to change. It's clean. It's good. It's low cost. Nobody wants to change that. Nobody wants to get in there and, and disrupt that industry that, and, and particularly because demand hasn't grown that much, you know, yet. So how do what do we do on the electricity side to get ready for this electric future? So not an electricity expert by by any means, but I think that sector in particular really highlights this challenge that we have with interdependence now because electrifying everything is going to require changes to the grid and improvements to the grid and build out. And so then Coming back to the report, it's one of those elements that we that we looked at. So if we were to do, you know, a really harsh look at, you know, battery electric vehicles for heavy duty applications. When we look at infrastructure, value chain, network, market familiarity, and all of that, it's like, there are these linchpins, right? And the electricity is one of those, those linchpins where those changes happen. And then more of this decarbonized tech can gain commercial traction at once. And do I know the answer? I don't. I'm sorry. I'm not as as close in that space as I probably as I probably should be. But again, I'm hopeful that even just the starting of the regional energy and resources tables will at least start to crystallize that discussion around what you're doing, what we're doing, what needs to happen, what that path and that accountability could look like, how much it's going to cost, and what needs to happen now. Well, let's let's leave it at, at it's a challenge. We got a big challenge on the electricity side, and we'll leave that conversation for another day. But let's talk about we'll wrap up our conversation with transportation, uh, all kinds of of commercial challenges. But boy, if there's an opportunity for Canada to get in into this industry in a bigger way than it was with internal combustion engine. Uh, vehicles. Uh, this is it. And there are some really exciting companies. Now, the one you uh, work for, Westport, that's one. Ballard Power Systems. Uh, there are plenty of other smaller ones, you know, like Hydra, for instance. Hydra Energy in Vancouver is just putting a pilot plant up in Prince George, which is up in northern BC, uh, and where there's a lot of logging. And so they're going to have a, a, a refueling system for logging trucks where they can 
the, uh, the, the logging truck can pull up and it'll have 50% hydrogen and run on 50% diesel fuel. They'll have a little electrolyzer right there. And they're going to, you know, do that pilot project. Uh, there are, you know, how many bus electric bus companies are there in Canada? You know, three or four of them. Uh, there, there are um, all sorts of across the country. The electric transportation industry is really kind of getting to roots. And, I, and there's a lot of potential for this in places that we don't think about. It does not just have to be uh, Ontario. But what what are some of the potential market accelerants to, you know, speed up change and, and growth in the transportation sector? So those companies that you mentioned, I think the first three, Westport, Ballard, Hydra, certainly Loop, HTEC, others, all in Vancouver. So there is this true center of commercial center of excellence, maybe a development center of excellence in Vancouver because of those two anchor companies that for the longest time were Canada's biggest clean tech players and still are to some degree. And so it's a question of talent and facilities. And in the same way that we see, you know, the, the Ontario auto sector, those facilities being transitioned because of the talent base that's there, because of the manufacturing assets that are there, there's opportunity in different parts of Canada as well, whether that's Quebec with EVs, whether that is in uh, Vancouver with, with hydrogen. And so those market accelerants then, we're seeing it. Stringent emission reduction requirements, um, EV mandates, bans on internal combustion engines, we're seeing the concurrent build out of charging and fueling infrastructure as well. It's not this chicken and egg anymore. It is moving out in parallel. There's more vehicle choice, not just for you or I who may want to buy a vehicle, but more vehicle choice that will meet demand in commercial duty cycles. So all of these things are happening, but transport got a bit of a head start, right? I've been, you know, not just my story, but there's a decades of investment that have been made in, in clean transport. So yes, it's happening now, but the challenge now is to get all of the sectors that need these emission reductions happening at the same type of pace. We don't have that kind of time anymore. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, I in, last last year I interviewed the uh, head of Bloomberg NEF's um, the Clean Energy Technology, I think was his title. Uh, but anyway, we were talking about um, uh, battery supply chains, electric ba vehicle battery supply chains. And I asked them, well, how long do we have? You know, like we must have like a decade, right? Before we really, you know, have to get going or at least 20, 30, come on. And he said, no, we got two to five years. And the reason is because in this particular space, as is what is true in other spaces, is that there are plenty of other companies or countries, sorry, uh, that want this more as much or more than Canada, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia. There's three right there. That are, that are putting a lot of resources, a lot of uh, supportive government policy in to leverage their competitive advantages so they get a big chunk of that emerging electric vehicle supply chain. And so getting Canada to move in a two to five year time frame, oh my God, I, I just, I, the, we are with the proverbial elephant. We don't move anywhere fast. And, and I think the, and you've mentioned a couple of times in this interview, you've talked about urgency. And it's it's the the pace and the speed at which things are changing globally that ought to be uh, uh, inducing ur the urgency in all of us, Canadians, all Canadians, policymakers, industry. And when I talked to, like when I interviewed the hydrogen companies in Vancouver, they get it. 
they understand this is like now or never. Woot woot, let's get on with it. They're they're pushing really hard. But I don't I don't think that's necessarily true in well, we already talked about oil and gas and electricity. That's not the case. And so how do we inject that urgency, that fact that we've only got two to five years to get our act together and really start moving forward in this? How do we do that? I think it's going to happen from these global competitive dynamics in which many of these large companies play, right? That there is going to be decisions that are impacting the viability of your, your product offer, your business, your whatever it is that you are developing and selling, right? It's global carbon pricing. It's capital markets decisions. It is extreme weather events. It's this whole confluence of, of factors. And so the speed... People, some people are moving fast. Others aren't yet. I think we're going to start to see that accelerate. It, I'm, I still remain really hopeful because I've seen how it's it's happened in the past. I can certainly see more evidence of of success and acceleration now. Um, it's going it's going to happen. There's just the too many entrepreneurs with great ideas. There's more capital than ever flowing into this sector. There is talent that is commercialized you know, product now and brought it to brought it to market and that there are, you know, prices on on carbon now that are going to be really driving commercial decisions. I want to flag one thing that you just mentioned, and, and that is human capital. So, you know, folks, uh, people with expertise and skills and uh, in my conversations with uh, in my interviews with these various companies, uh, that is the number one impediment to to change. Is they need they need well trained technical people uh, with as much experience as possible. There's keen lots of competition in Vancouver, for instance, uh, for that. And uh, I later next next month and in March I'll be in Alberta talking, giving presentations to students at Nate and Sate, which are technical colleges for our American listeners, and. That'll be one of the my messages to them is that every time it doesn't matter which industry I talk to, it's a battery industry, it's it's the oil and gas, whatever it is, it's it's the people that are the impediment to rapid expansion, and that is actually a, a place where where governments can play a big role because they they fund the education system, they fund the training system, the universities to a large extent. And maybe that is someplace that's we can start pushing on that string. And and I guess we already are. I mean, in fairness, it's not like, you know, this is a new idea, but maybe it just needs a little more attention. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does, because I think was Minister Wilkinson a few weeks ago was quoted as saying, I'm concerned there won't be enough people to fill these jobs. It's not that I'm concerned that there won't be jobs. There won't be the people to fill these jobs in this net zero economy. And so in our framework then in our commercial ecosystem map, we included management capability. Certainly talent could be part of it, but we thought, does the management team have the capability, the commercial capability to put this technology out into market at industrial scale, to compete with incumbents, to understand all of the market dynamics associated with um, with commercialization. We certainly saw that in the automotive sector. So the executives that were at Westport and Ballard are those now with 
you know, tier one automotive path to market experience. It's not the same executives that found cool tech at UBC and, you know, built some facilities, raised some money and, and developed some disruptive technology. So it's almost a piece too on the, the executive talent that's going to be required that understands commercialization, international business development, how to, you know, capital markets raise all of these. That's another big piece of it as well. We can't lose sight that it's not just a technical story, but it's also an executive leadership story. And we're starting to see far more of those people now with that experience in Canada. That's really positive. Yeah, that's a great story. And we don't have enough time to uh, follow it up in this interview but that's something we need to pay attention to. I really agree. Well, look, uh, Karen, we've, we've been yakking for an hour. This has been a fascinating conversation. And uh, I think what your report does is it breaks apart some of the processes uh, into what are the challenges, what are the potential accelerants, you know, the the way to get uh, the way to solve those challenges. Uh, highly recommend anybody uh, who wants to uh, to read it for themselves. Uh, we'll put a link to the report uh, in the show notes and uh, look forward to having you back again for more of these uh, fascinating discussions. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a delight. 